Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for 15th of January 2014, as well as our last installment in the Chad Behavioral Health Mini Fellowship Series. This has been going on since the summer. We will uh, keep integrating these with our Grand Round Series, and um, we welcome our colleagues throughout the region on VTAL in Manchester, Nashua, typically. We will start a gastroenterology Chad PDI, uh, mini fellowship on February 19th with um, Dr. Neil Lalico, the chief of pediatric GI at uh, Hasbro Children's Hospital at Brown. And we will have grand rounds next week by Dr. Suresh of our own department. I um, wanted to highlight something this morning in the kudos department and so, something that I mentioned in the Chad chatter at the end of December. but. Um, really, it's kind of exciting national recognition and uh, remind folks that Sam Casella leading our patient safety and quality efforts along with a team of Diane Andrews and we usually see Jeff Lowe here at Grand Rounds and others on the team have gotten national recognition through the um, Solutions for Patient Safety, a national hospital engagement network, which was launched by the Ohio Children's Hospital Association through December. It looks like the primary goal of reducing serious patient harm by 20% at CHAD will be exceeded by maybe as much as 8 or 9%, 28 to 29% decrease in serious patient harm. And there's a national distinction of being named a high-performing hospital uh, in decreasing adverse drug events. And so CHAD will be highlighted in that network. Uh, for its work and Jeff's work and that that particular team. So um, exciting news for Chad and for the safety group and a call that Sam I'm sure will or would have put out that next year's projects are going to be launched very soon and so there'll be continuous uh, continuing teams on trying to decrease adverse events or, or increase patient safety. So so join the team and get some national recognition and congrats to Jeff, Sam and, and others on the team. Um, Today, Dr. Davis joins us, as I described, to continue our series and has a uh, sort of a graduate level discussion of depressive disorders and ADHD as comorbidities, which are important comorbidities that many of us deal with in both primary care and specialty practice. Uh, Dr. Davis received an undergraduate degree in English from Williams College and Medical School at Baylor College of, Med College of Medicine in Houston, general psychiatry residency at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, and child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at University of Utah in Salt Lake City, also chief resident. He was here at DHMC between 1995 and 2000. He went off to Western Psych in Pennsylvania as well as the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and returned for a while to San Antonio before coming back yet again to be associate professor of child psychiatry and associate professor of pediatrics here at uh, Geisel School of Medicine and Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So I think uh, Burl's actually presented no Grand Rounds before in the past year. So welcome to Grand Rounds, Burl. Microphone working? Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay. Good. Well, it's a pleasure uh, to be able to, to come today and, and present for you guys. I, I um, in any case, uh, let me dive right in. I, I must confess, I have uh, quite a few slides uh, today. I did drink the um, 
the Jamaica Me Crazy coffee right beforehand, because uh, <laughs> I figured that'd be appropriate. But, um, we're, I'm going to cover a lot of different things. Uh, we'll try and save some time at the end for uh, some questions and answers. And um, also, I, I guess if there's something that really makes absolutely no sense, put your hand up, and we'll see if we can uh, stamp it out right then and there, if, if not. Um, I first should say in the, in the initial uh, announcements that went out, it said there were no disclosures. Well, that's not quite right. Um, reading the rules again, uh, these are, are some uh, relevant disclosures with, within the last couple of years. The, the X's with the, the yellows underlined are, are things that, uh, that at least you should be aware of. Uh, and I'm also going to be talking about some off-label medications today. And essentially, uh, we have lots of meds that are approved for ADHD, lots of meds that are or a, a few that are approved for depression, only two. And then everything else uh, actually being treated, uh, used for treatment in kids with ADHD is, is essentially off-label. So we're kind of in, in uncharted territory as far as the FDA is concerned. Um, I also just want to briefly acknowledge, uh, I've, I've been at several different places, and I've, I've just um, had a tremendous um, exposure to some wonderful collaborators and mentors at, at the various places I've, I've either been at or, or, or been associated with. Uh, long, long distance, and I want to acknowledge those as well as uh, some grant support that um, either was directly to me or, or uh, to colleagues that I was working with that allowed me to, to have the opportunity to collect data and, and, and do research that I'm going to be talking with you about today. All right, so essentially my slide uh, topic, I think, does the best job of just describing what our objectives are today. We're going to talk about the risk factors for comorbid depression, co-occurring depression in kids with ADHD. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about the challenges related to assessing those kids um, uh, and, and what uh, we in the, in the front lines can do to, to overcome some of those challenges. And then uh, lastly, we're going to talk a bit about, about treatment strategies and, and what the empirical evidence uh, suggests we do and, and what the heck do we do uh, without having very much good evidence to, to guide us. Now, uh, I'm going to talk first primarily about, uh, or just briefly about the public health uh, aspects. Why do we even care about this, this co-occurring group of disorders? Um, ADHD, as you guys are well aware, is, is, uh, is a very, very common disorder. It's the most common disorder you're going to see in your, your clinical settings. Um, uh, in a primary care setting, it's, uh, the prevalence in the U.S. has uh, slowly climbed up over the years. Um, appears to be about 3 to 8% in most of the studies. However, if you look at epidemiological samples, kids out in the community, only about a third are actually getting treated uh, at any given time. So it's way under-treated. Um, it's highly heritable, so it does tend to run in families. Parents um, and siblings are going to have this disorder, too, oftentimes. It's associated with uh, really a significant impairment in multiple uh, functional domains, almost by definition, based on the DSM criteria. And it's a chronic uh, disorder. It hangs around for a long time. Um, now, in terms of long-term impact, you guys uh, are, are aware, working with, with uh, ADHD patients uh, on the front lines and in primary care settings, that uh, oftentimes these kids actually don't outgrow the, the disorders by adolescence or adulthood. Um, there's lots and lots of uh, impairment in, in multiple domains, as I said, educational issues, um, uh, occupational problems into adulthood. Uh, there are all sorts of social implications with having ADHD. Uh, these are kids that not only have impaired peer relations, but they have early on protected sex. They uh, have marital problems and divorces into adulthood. They have a higher level of uh, legal problems. They're at a higher rate of getting into driving, driving accidents uh, and, and having other fatal, uh, fatal uh, mishaps. 
their risk of suicidal, uh, completed suicides actually threefold higher than, than in people without ADHD in community settings. So it's a, it really is a, a significant disorder. The other thing is that, that many of these kids or, or adults, as many as two-thirds, are going to have some sort of other disorder, a mental health disorder. And it's often those comorbidities that drive the outcomes that make, make these, uh, um, that account for many of these problems as well. Now, in terms of comorbidity, just briefly, I mean, you guys know these kids never, or almost never tend to present just simply with ADHD. They, uh, oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorders, the so-called so externalizing disorders are much higher in the, um, kids with ADHD. Into adulthood, uh, they, or, 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 or at least adolescence, their, their risk of alcohol and drug use uh, climbs up. Um, learning and language disorders are pretty common, uh, but tend to be uh, subtle. They not often fly under the radar screen. Um, anxiety disorders are, are, are an issue. Um, interestingly, in younger kids, I think anxiety disorders tend to be often um, a, a, a more often a presenting complaint, at least for some parent, uh, kids and parents. Um, in adolescence, I think depression becomes a bigger deal. Uh, and then there's sort of a debate in our field about bipolar disorder. A lot of, uh, a lot of, um, at least some investigators around the country and clinicians um, believe that that the rate could be as high as 23 percent based on on various studies. Um, in any case, it, it's definitely higher in folks with ADHD than than in folks without ADHD. Now, in terms of depression, just in general, and I know we've got um, some terrific. Uh, 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 colleagues in the Department of Pediatrics that have, have uh, beat the drums on depression for a while. Um, you guys uh, hopefully are aware that, that uh, essentially major depression, the most severe variant of that, um, is occurring in about 2% of children and about 8% of adolescents, roughly. But even minor depressions, what we call uh, dep uh, NOS or, or, or dysthymia, are also quite impairing and, and common. Um, all of the various versions of depression tend to be recurrent. Um, their morbidity increases with each recurrence. Uh, so they, they get worse over time if they keep coming back. Um, they're associated also, like my ADHD, with lots of uh, long-term morbidity and comorbidity and high rates, rates of legal problems and suicide uh, attempts and completions. Uh, and, and as many as, as uh, 20 to 40 percent of pediatric depressive disorders, at least by some investigators' reports, may, may eventually convert over to bipolar disorders. So they're also a can of worms. And then you put two cans of worms together, and you have a really big can of worms, um, unfortunately. So with, with ADHD and comorbid depression, um, the rate of, of major depressive disorders is about five and a half fold more in kids with ADHD than kids without ADHD, uh, up to about 40% by the end of, of adolescence. Um, minor depressive disorders, again, are, are, are also quite common and maybe um, quite impairing as well. But the critical thing is, uh, just thinking of this as a primary care person, um, there's a window of, uh, between when kids get ADHD and when they tend to get major depression. Um, and it's about four to five years. And that may be a time when it's really important for us to be doing all we can to, to, uh, for preventative measures or, or trying to aggressively uh, see and treat these kids uh, regarding their ADHD before things get worse uh, and go to the, the, this other uh, worse uh, variety, having both depression and ADHD together. All right, um, now in, in several different studies, not surprisingly, um, there seems, if, if we compare kids just with depression alone, kids or adults with just depression alone, to uh, those with, uh, with depression along with ADHD, um, th there's a, not surprisingly a much earlier, or the, the, the comorbid condition is a lot worse. Um, 
that uh, folks with uh, ADHD and depression have an earlier onset of uh, their depressive disorders, uh, longer duration typically of the depressive disorders, higher levels of suicidality and hospitalizations. That's at least in a, a recent study done by uh, Biederman and colleagues at Mass General uh, in, a, in a group of young adult females um, with depression and or ADHD. Um, they also have higher levels of recurrence of depression uh, than those without, uh, uh, those with just uh, depression alone, those that don't have a comorbid ADHD as well. Um, and they also have higher overall healthcare costs, uh, which we're all conscious of now with the recent switch to managed care organizations. Um, in terms of, of um, this group, this is a, a group that I've been interested in for many years because I kept um, seeing these folks clinically and thinking, you know, I'm, I'm sure seeing a lot of kids uh, that look depressed and uh, that, ha that have ADHD. Um, and several years ago, I was able to convince uh, um, a group to give me a, an initial a sort of small foundation grant to do a little study when I was at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, this was a, um, essentially a, a, an observational study of kids with ADHD looking at those that developed depression and what was different uh, with them. Um, so it was a prospective observational study, um, and uh, the subjects were 11 to 18 years of old age. All of them had um, some subtype of ADHD. Um, we did, uh, in the study, lifetime diagnoses uh, using the kitty sets, which is a, kind of the mother of all semi-structured uh, mental health interviews. It's, it's a bear to complete, but it's, it's sort of the standard in, in psychiatry, at least. Uh, these kids were assessed at two different time points, uh, separated by eight months. Um, and uh, at each of those assessments, we also collected a lot of other data, including um, parent-child reports of, of the kids' impairment, adverse life events, parent-child conflict, uh, and lifetime history of trauma exposure. And then to add to that, um, each month we had these kids and their parents fill out monthly rating scales uh, describing their depressive symptoms. And then we had parents and teachers fill out monthly rating scales during that the study period describing their ADHD symptoms. Now, uh, the final sample in the study was 104 uh, subjects. 38 of these, or about 37% uh, were female. 20% um, were of non-white race, uh, typically um, African-American. This is in Pittsburgh again. Um, the lifetime history of depressive, any depressive disorders in the overall sample was 63 out of the 104. But again, we oversample for depression. Um, we, that, 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 that particular rate is higher than what we were reporting earlier uh, in, in community samples. Um, the worst depressive episodes in, in this uh, study sample were major depression in 40 of these uh, 63, and then a minor depression in, in the other 23, either uh, dysthymia or DEP-NOS. Um, and in this sample, it's important to note that a large chunk of these kids actually didn't have um, fully syndromal depression. Um, uh, only 25 had current major depression, and another 18 had minor depression. So many of these were kids that had had a depressive episode before but didn't have one currently. <clears throat> now, we did a comparison just looking at those with a history of depression, any depression, uh, and those that had never been depressed. And, and not surprisingly, you saw lots and lots of things that we would predict based on what, what I already mentioned before. A higher history of hospitalizations in the depressed group. Um, more suicidal ideations and, and attempts. Um, current suicidal ideations were, were actually quite high, even in a group that, that many of them didn't have syndromal depression at the time of the study. And also their depressive symptomatology was, was much higher than in the, the never depressed group. Now, in terms of, of, um, uh, of current uh, level of function, uh, these kids with a lifetime history of depression were actually doing much worse uh, at the time of the assessment. Um, 
uh, both in terms of, of uh, uh, impairment measures, but also parent-child conflict, um, and even recent adverse life events. Um, that they, they report a lot more bad things happening to them uh, than the kids that, with no history of depression. And it wasn't clear, is that because of the depression, or is that, um, is that a, a cause of the, the, the depression? It wasn't clear. Now, um, so in general, looking at all the, the, uh, the data I've already um, presented to you, or the, some of the studies I've already summarized, clearly this, this comorbid occurrence of these two disorders is, is, a, is a significant problem. It's common, both in children and adolescents. Um, lots of long-term impairment and, and uh, risk of suicidality and bad outcomes. It really is uh, not just a, a zebra with, with green eyes. It, it, it's, it's a common problem that we're, uh, we're affected by quite a bit. Uh, in our clinical settings. Um, interestingly enough, and I said this is a pretty significantly morbid group. There's lots and lots of problems with, with these co-occurring kids. But in our sample, and this was even a uh, primarily clinical sample, only 50% roughly were getting uh, medications for, for their ADHD at the time of the, uh, the, their study entry. Only about 50% were, were seeing a therapist even once a month, kind of minimal therapy. And even less of those with comorbid depression were actually on an antidepressant. The other thing that, that convinced me about this study was just um, clearly knowing which kids are at risk. How can we figure out which kids are liable to get this uh, could help us not only to identify these kids earlier, but, but also to guide us regarding treatment and maybe um, suggest some preventive measures as well. So the next, uh, one of the key questions is, is, which kids with ADHD actually do wind up getting depressed? And it's kind of the usual suspects, uh, at least as best I can tell from, uh, from my work and others. Um, there's the genetic factors uh, that are involved, the psychosocial factors, and then there are factors actually specific to the ADHD alone. What, what makes kids with ADHD perhaps a bit different and more likely uh, to get depressed? We're going to talk about all those in, in, uh, in, in sequence here. In terms of genetics, um, ADHD is a, is a highly heritable disorder. It's probably the most heritable disorder in, in among the psychiatric disorders in, in children and adolescents, for sure. Depression is not quite as heritable. Um, but uh, a recent uh, review article, actually not so recent, done by um, uh, Steve Ferrone uh, at the time he was at Mass General Hospital, um, looked at um, family studies of ADHD and depression together to look at uh, the, the genetic uh, connections uh, and, and links between them. And what he concluded, uh, Ferron and colleagues, was that really they share depression and ADHD, share a lot of the same familial risk factors. Um, there's uh, both looking at top-down and bottom-up studies, um, they tend to occur in clumps within families. So one family member or the kid may develop ADHD, the other may have depression instead. So it's not unusual for uh, for those to, to occur in, in clumps. Um, but they also concluded that really the environmental factors are probably much more important than the, than the genetic in terms of determining which kids with, with ADHD actually go on to get depressed. Now, in terms of general depressive risk factors, you guys are familiar with these too, hopefully. But um, you know, essentially, lots and lots of environmental things, family conflicts and stressors, traumatic exposure, adverse life events, peer problems, school problems, global impairment. Um, gee, that sounds an awful lot like the kids we're working with that have ADHD already. And that, that particular uh, issue with these kids with ADHD, all the impairment and, and, uh, and problems that, that surround them may, may perhaps contribute to them developing depression eventually. Um, and this has been sort of a long-term uh, idea, this idea that um, you know, maybe depression is just, it's not really depression, it's just getting bummed out because you have ADHD and all the frustrations with that. 
Um, another, uh, another study done, again, by the Mass General Group and, and Dr. Biedemann uh, looked at exactly this question. Is, is, uh, is, uh, they looked at this in a, in a group of kids um, that had both major depression and ADHD together. They followed them over a four-year period of time longitudinally. Um, and they looked at persistent MDD as an outcome, uh, which was true in about 45% um, of the sample. Um, they, they reported some independent predictors of persistent MDD in the sample. It was interpersonal problems and bipolarity. Um, interestingly enough, ADHD symptoms had, uh, was not, were not independent predictors of which kids continue to have depression over the four-year time. And based on this, they concluded that this is really true depression. It's not just being bummed out because you have ADHD. Now, in our sample, that the sample I mentioned before, um, we actually looked at this as well. We, we compared various ADHD variables in the kids with a lifetime history of depression to those without depression, and, and there, were, there was nothing that lit up in terms of the ADHD uh, severity um, variables that are listed here, either currently or, or at onset of the disorder. On the other hand, things like traumatic exposure were, were significant uh, predictors, um, especially victimization events. Those are trauma exposures where either the kid has harmed him, him or herself or witnesses someone else, uh, something bad happening to someone else that's uh, uh, you know, based on, on human choice. Um, so uh, so-called non-victimization events, things like being in a, in a car accident or seeing some, someone else get hurt in an accident or being in a storm, none of those were, were significantly different in the, between those two groups. Now, um, one thing that, that I was especially curious about, uh, at least in our sample, and, and uh, um, a, a statistician I was working with uh, previously encouraged me to look at, was, uh, was this idea about uh, ADHD pharmacotherapy. Might that be a predictor of, of, uh, of depressive disorders? And really, um, that could go either way. I mean, it, uh, there are actually animal studies where they put mice in, in um, in barrels and make them swim a lot and see how long they swim. Um, where if, if they give them stimulants, they don't swim as long. Um, I'm not sure what that exactly has to do with kids, but um, just something to be aware of. Um, on the other hand, I mean, there's this idea, and we all as clinicians have this sort of intuitive idea that, gee, if we really help our kids with ADHD early on and, and get them to, uh, to function better, we may actually lower their risk of, of depression in the long run. So, um, so actually, in, the, in that study, I, I had the, uh, the, the community or the, the observational study we had in Pittsburgh. Um, I was able to actually do a kind of a cool little analysis uh, where we did a survival analysis. Um, we had uh, pretty good data on, on most of the kids in that sample regarding when they first got on their ADHD medicines and at what age they, they got on them. We also had a, an age of onset of their, their ADHD uh, based on the, the semi-structured interviews. So we looked at the time from ADHD onset until the, major, the first major depressive episode, if any. Um, and uh, one of the key predictors we were looking at was ADHD pharmacotherapy, if that, if that was a predictor. Um, uh, we excluded kids when we, uh, either for, uh, when the, the major depression onset occurred before the onset of ADHD, um, or if, if the, uh, the pharmacotherapy, the age of first pharmacotherapy was not, not available. And that left us 75 in the final sample, about half of which um, had a history of MDD, the other half had never been depressed. And once again, these had similar levels of ADHD severity, just based on all those measures I'd already mentioned. Um, this is a, 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 just a quick look at the survival uh, analysis curve. And this is um, uh, just to orient you. This is years after the onset of ADHD. And this is a percentage of kids that uh, had survived or had not developed major depression yet. 
And the solid line at the top is actually kids that had never been treated with, uh, with an ADHD medicine. Now again, as soon as they got treated, they switched over to the treated group. It was a, 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 a ADHD pharmacotherapy was a time-dependent variable. But what you can see is after about three to four years, you start getting separation between the treated and the untreated group. The longer kids with ADHD don't get treated, according to these data, um, the, the, the higher their risk of developing major depression. Okay, so um, kind of cool stuff, uh, but this study had some significant limitations. I mean, it was a, we were looking at retrospectively at when they developed major depression. That's a, that's a big one. The other thing is, it may very well be that the kids that get treated earlier are, have other protective factors. You know, they, they, they may be in from better families or, or um, uh, have other, other things that, that make them more likely to receive treatment. Um, so really, th there were some limitations with this. Uh, we also uh, did a, a, a multivariate analysis looking at trauma exposure, which is another big predictor in the sample. And the good news is at least ADHD pharmacotherapy um, uh, remained a significant predictor even after we looked at trauma exposure as well. But in any case, there were definitely some limitations with the study. Um, so a couple of years ago, actually, I published, after I published this study, the, the big shots at, at Mass General actually did a very similar study that was a better study. It was a longitudinal study where they looked at kids over a 10-year period of time. And uh, this is a sample of 112 kids that were reassessed 10 years later uh, at a mean age of 22 years. Um, and what they found is doing survival analysis again, uh, the subjects treated with stimulants were, were significantly less likely to develop major depression um, uh, after, uh, uh, after 10 years of, of the ADHD. So it's nice to at least have my um, cruddy, sloppy study be replicated by a much better study. <laughs> Now, also in this sample that I was mentioning before I keep beating a dead horse about, we looked at suicidal behaviors. Lifetime suicidal behaviors is another outcome. And we found many of the same suspects, even after controlling for um, demographic variables and even lifetime major depression. Um, we found that, that kids uh, with, with ADHD alone, whether or not they had depression, um, were at higher risk of suicidal behaviors if, if their impairment was poor. Um, it seemed to be related to non-academic impairment, because if we only looked at academic impairment, that wasn't a significant predictor. Um, once again, parent-child con conflict was a huge um, contributing factor to suicidal behaviors in kids with ADHD. Uh, victimization events, family violence, um, the, uh, sort of the usual suspects that you, you, we've already talked about were, were contributing to, to a higher risk. Um, now, uh, one of the things, uh, looking at other, other groups now and, and, and findings they've had, um, in, the, in the young adult sample that I mentioned before, young adult female sample uh, that was Biederman and colleagues study, um, they actually found that uh, patients with comorbid ADHD were more likely to have suicidal behavior if they had depression than kids uh, that had just depression alone. I'm sorry, not kids, young adults, uh, young adult females. So in our sample, we. Um, uh, one of the reviewers of the paper that I published on that um, rightfully suggested maybe we ought to look at boys and girls separately. It may be that, that, um, that, that they don't behave the same in terms of societal behavior. And sure enough, when we looked at only girls, which is a, um, a you know, subgroup of our, our overall population, um, we did see that the hyperactive impulsive symptoms associated with ADHD, either by, um, by uh, 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 rating scales or by uh, the Connors Continuous Performance Test, um, things like errors of commission, uh, hitting a button too quickly uh, when you have a computer screen that's flashing different letters, and guessing, um, kind of taking a guess and, 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 uh, before you, you have all the data. Impulse, things that are suggestive of impulsivity seem to be higher, uh, more highly associated with the, 
with, with suicidal behaviors in girls at least. All right, so um, let, let's talk about, about how the heck do we tell who's got ADHD and depression <coughs> together, right, as opposed to kids with just ADHD alone. You guys are familiar, hopefully, with the mnemonic, the, the Siggy Caps mnemonic, or if not, you always have the PHQ-9 to fall back on, at least in our adolescence. You all are familiar with the, uh, the, 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 the DSM criteria for um, major depression, hopefully. But I think this is a useful mnemonic if, if uh, you want something that uh, you can pull out of a hat when you don't have the PHQ-9 handy. Um, but it's, it's basically a combination of various vegetative symptoms along with uh, depressed or irritable moods that are significantly uh, outside of the range of normal, that are developmentally inappropriate. Um, also, by definition, with depression, you have to have significant impairment either social or academic or, or the most common. Um, you as pediatricians know better than, than we psychiatrists that you have to think about organic causes for potential depression. Uh, could, could also be drugs or alcohol in our teenage uh, kids with ADHD. Certainly, we've already talked about environmental risks and certainly family history. There, there's a genetic component as well. So those are things that you, uh, when you're seeing a, a patient uh, looking for depression alone, you're, you're thinking about. Now. Um, in adolescents or adults with ADHD, it's a little trickier, frankly, um, because sometimes depression can be the presenting complaint. I, I think Keith and I have had, had a few uh, cases in common just in the last couple of years where a kid came in primarily with depressive symptoms, but when we dug a little deeper, we actually uh, realized that, that the kid had had ADHD for a long time and had never been treated. Um, with the DSM-5, they've actually broadened the, uh, or, or, or broadened the, the inclusion criteria. You now have to have onset of ADHD symptoms before the age of 12 uh, to meet DSM-5 criteria. And if you're an adult, you only need five symptoms of uh, inattention or hyperimpulsivity rather than six. So actually, it may, it may make it, uh, give us a more little, we, a little uh, greater leeway to, to diagnose kids or adults with ADHD. Uh, again, it's important to ask about substance use disorders. I mean, I have had uh, a few patients, maybe you all have too, that right before the appointment, uh, for whatever reason, they, they looked at the DSM criteria for ADHD and reviewed them all and endorsed all of them, or their parents did, and then you come to find later, well, gee, they're uh, you know, smoking weed every day and, and potentially uh, wanting to be on Concert or Adderall to sell it and get more weed. Um, so it's important to ask and, and think about substance use disorders and be suspicious of that in your adolescents and adults. It's also important, I think, to get collateral history. Um, don't just rely on the patient's self-report, especially for ADHD symptoms or even for depressive symptoms. You want to you get history from other, uh, other folks that uh, know the patient as well. Um, and then the other thing is, it's important to think about the time sequence. Um, really, to have um, a legitimate diagnosis of ADHD, you have to have the, the, the ADHD symptoms independent of the depression. You can't just have inattentive problems or, or hyperimpulsive problems always when you're depressed. It has to be, there has to have been a spell of time at some point where, where the two disorders were, were separate from each other, ideally. Uh, the other thing that's a challenge is that Guess what? Our parents and kids and teachers, they never agree with each other. Am I right? I mean, it, how often do you line up a, a Vanderbilt and you see it's like they're rating two different kids sometimes? Um, and even parents, dads and moms never agree with each other, often don't. So you have to weigh all this contradictory information from different folks. Um, generally, we think of parents being better or more reliable about um, than their kids about reporting ADHD and other externalizing symptoms. On the other hand, Adolescents are going to tend to be, in, in general, are going to tend to be better reporting depressive symptoms. 
But guess what? The kids with ADHD um, that are reporting depressive symptoms just want to get the darn form done. And they'll go through and draw a line through all the zeros without even looking at it sometimes. I mean, I've seen that over and over again. Um, so not surprisingly, when we actually looked at that exact, um, exact issue in a much bigger sample of uh, both clinical and community uh, kids, uh, using one, uh, one measure of the Mood and Feelings Questionnaire, uh, comparing kids and parents' uh, ratings of it, we definitely notice that parents are better reporters of, of depressive symptoms when their kids have ADHD. And we also notice that relative to kids without ADHD, kids with ADHD don't do such a good job reporting depressive symptoms. So it's important to just sort of take all that with a grain of salt and do the best you can. Now, um, another, another study that one of the fellows that worked with me when I was at Pittsburgh and I did uh, was actually looking at specific symptoms of depression, which are the ones that, uh, that you need to spend more time on on the PHQ-9 or, or whatever you're using. Um, and what we found is the most useful symptoms um, uh, really in, in discriminating depression are cognitive symptoms, um, you know, feelings of guilt, worthlessness, hopelessness, suicidal thoughts or behaviors. Um, also, kids that, that can't enjoy anything, everything is, is, is boring all the time, or that has psychomotor retardation, they really are slowed down much more than they normally would be when they were just their happy hyper shells before. <laughs> um, and and uh, on the other hand, the things that aren't so useful are uh, irritability. Uh, lots of our patients, uh, for whatever reason, have irritability, so uh, that's not so surprising. But also vegetative symptoms, things like insomnia, energia, restlessness. Poor concentration, low appetite. Any ideas why that would be? Teenagers. Teenagers, yeah, that's, a, that's one good idea. I mean, the other thing is, some of these kids, um, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Teenagers are just wired completely different. Uh, I've, I've had experience five of them in, in my family. Um, so so you, have to, you have to actually um, take that into account. But also, um, there's a lot of overlap with depression itself. Um, th those are the symptoms that, that sound a little bit like the DSM criteria for depression. They also sound a little bit like the side effects of, of ADHD medicines. Many of these kids are on stimulants. How do you tell if decreased appetite or sleep problems is due to the, the medicine or, or, or something else? Uh, a legitimate depression. The other thing that makes uh, this, this group a little more challenging is that um, parents, we already mentioned, uh, parents are better, generally better reporters of, of, um, of both ADHD and depressive symptoms in this group. But if parents are depressed, uh, they're gonna, they may not always give you the most reliable ratings either. Uh, this was an analysis uh, that we presented at a poster, Dr. Uh, Katie Shea and I, uh, who, who's actually worked with you guys. Uh, she presented this um, recently at the, the child psychiatry meeting uh, from this, uh, this Pittsburgh sample. And what we found is that parents' self-ratings on their own depression measure, the, the Beck's depressive inventory, were highly associated with them exaggerating reports of their kids' ADHD and oppositional symptoms relative to teacher reports, and also uh, of their kids' depressive symptoms relative to the, the kids' reports. So it's important to be aware of that. Depressed parents may not give you the best information. Now, just briefly talking about bipolar disorder, um, I, this is a mnemonic that I made up because I could never remember all the DSM criteria called the Grand Rapid. I think it's useful for me. There's some other ones too. I think one called Dig Fast or something like that. Um, but, but essentially, uh, when we're talking about mania, true-blown mania, you have to have at least four uh, uh, or seven, depending on if it's hypomania or mania um, episodes you're looking for, uh, of, of these symptoms. Um, and they have to be uh, accompanied by either three or four manic, uh, not only three or four manic symptoms, but 
Um, but depending on if, if the, the mood is elated or, or irritable, if it's irritable, you have to have one more than with, uh, uh, with, with just an elated mood. And the duration has to, again, be uh, four to seven days. It's often the duration uh, criterion that, that winds up being the deal buster in diagnosing kids with, with mania. Um, in any case, uh, so this mnemonic may, may or may not be useful to, to you all. But again, there's lots of overlap, as you can see, between some of these you know, racing thoughts, reckless pursuit of pleasurable behaviors, um, pressured speech, insomnia, distractibility. Sounds a little bit like ADHD. Um, so not surprisingly, because of that overlap, um, those particular symptoms may not be as useful in, in telling which of these kids with moodiness and ADHD or wind up having bipolar disorders. Um, usually what I focus more on is, is family history of bipolarity. Uh, and other, other uh, investigators have looked at this in, in kids with ADHD and reported that the best symptoms are going to be markedly elevated moods. Kids that are super happy uh, for an extended period of time, have grandiose ideas uh, about themselves, have decreased need for sleep. And I'm talking three to four hours or less um, of sleep without really needing to. Um, also, kids with hypersexual behaviors uh, and psychotic symptoms. Those are going to be the, the ones you want to pay the most attention to among the ADHD kids. You're also going to want to, um, uh, in your depressed patients, you're going to want to consider the possibility of bipolarity, uh, or at least a higher risk down, down, down the road of converting to bipolarity if a kid has a rapid onset of their depressive symptoms, a hypersomnia, psychomotor retardation, or, or psychosis. All right, so lots of assessment things. Um, Let's talk a bit about treatment and, and what we do about this. And there, there are really two main uh, two keys or strategies that we can use here, uh, psychosocial and pharmacological. Um, just briefly, I'm going to talk about psychosocial um, interventions. Therapists are your best friends. And when you're dealing with a kid that has ADHD and some sort of mood issue, I really think it's good to refer uh, kids like this to a therapist and get them to work with you. They can help you monitor those mood symptoms over time. Uh, there's also, I think, good support now for uh, therapy being quite helpful, certain types of therapy for, uh, for pediatric depression in general. Um, unfortunately, there's not as much evidence in kids with ADHD, but, but that doesn't keep me from referring these kids to, to others. Um, uh, also, uh, therapists often will, uh, will, will focus on, on the, the uh, kind of the family issues or family factors that may be related to a kid with ADHD um, uh, being more likely to develop depression. Um, they can, they're really good at understanding how to, to work through the school system and get accommodations for these kids. And that can be helpful uh, for working along with you to target some of the other comorbid stuff that's going on, too. Now, in terms of pharmacotherapy options, I'm going to spend more time talking about that. Since I'm going to talk about three main types, monotherapy with an ADHD medicine. That's either going to be a stimulant or adamoxetine. Those are the FDA-approved ones. I didn't include Intunib, or I'm sorry, Lonfacine or, or, or Clonidine in that. Um, Monotherapy with an antidepressant, uh, tar targeting primarily the, uh, uh, potentially the depressive symptoms. And we'll talk primarily about SSRIs, but also non-SSRIs like uh, the tricyclics and bupropen too. And then combination therapy, using both a, a med to treat the ADHD and a medicine to treat the, the depression. So first, let's talk briefly about stimulant monotherapy. Um, and and um, this was a review done uh, actually way back in 96, quite, quite a while ago. Uh, by Spencer and colleagues, uh, where they, they reported on, on the nine studies that have looked at stimulants where they, they measured depressive or anxiety response uh, and how it related to, to uh, um, uh, 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 how, how it was predicted by stimulant monotherapy and, and responded to stimulant monotherapy. Um, so both uh, in these instances, depression was both a moderator uh, and, an out, uh, and potentially an outcome. 
Um, six out of not, these nine studies noted, lo, noted lower ADHD response on stimulants when you had either comorbid anxiety or depression. Only two of these nine studies specifically looked at depression alone. A lot of them sort of lump, uh, or lump anxiety and depression together. Um, uh, the other thing is that, that none of these studies actually reported depressive or anxiety response specifically. They, they mostly focused on ADHD mm -hmm. response. Um, just in the last couple of months, uh, a study uh, published in, in clinical neuropharmacology that I came across um, finally got around to looking at depressive symptoms as an outcome um, in, in doing it the right way um, in kids that were, were treated with, with the ADHD uh, medicines, um, methylphenidate monotherapy. This was a, a study in Israel, 47 kids. Um, they had ADHD and did not have full-blown depression. They had what, what was called, they called subsyndromal depression. They didn't quite have enough depressive symptoms to be dysthymic or, or deaf NOS or, or, uh, or MDD. Uh, and they gave all these kids open label 12 weeks of, of methylphenidate treatment. They reported significant decreases, not only in their ADHD symptoms, but also in their depression ratings uh, symptoms after the, the methylphenidate treatment. And those two seem, uh, improvement responses seem to be highly correlated with each other. Um, and so um, one thing that they did notice that, that uh, there was less of a depressive response in, in kids that had more depressive symptoms. So they concluded that really this is a good group potentially um, that, that uh, um, at least the subsyndromal kids may be a reasonable group to, to treat with stimulant monotherapy. Now, um, again, that was an open label study. It wasn't a randomized control study. Um, another, uh, or, uh, the, the, looking at stimulant monotherapy overall, um, I, I think it's a reasonable place to start in, in our uh, kids in, that we're seeing in primary care settings especially. Uh, again, stimulants are well tolerated. They're effective. They, um, if there's a problem, you can bail out on them really quickly. It doesn't take you long to figure out if they're helping or not. But unfortunately, uh, up to this point, there's very limited empirical evidence uh, for, for how depression responds uh, and really how depression moderates the ADHD response. And again, no randomized control trials to date. Now, what about uh, adamoxetine monotherapy? Um, this is something that the makers of, of um, adamoxetine had in the back of their minds when they first developed this drug. Um, initially, um, uh, adamoxetine was, was developed as an antidepressant, um, but they realized that they could make a lot more money and, and actually had more of an effect size when they, uh, if they looked at this uh, for, for uh, treating ADHD instead. But the, the, uh, this is an industry-sponsored study, actually a randomized controlled trial uh, of adamoxetine in adolescents with, uh, with both ADHD and major depression together. Um, and again, uh, this was a really well, frankly, well-done study. And, a, 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 you know, relatively courageous study for industry, an industry to sponsor. Um, the, the study was a nine-week study of, of uh, adamoxetine or, or placebo, uh, equally divided. Uh, they reported a decrease in interview-rated ADHD responses in both groups, the kids with, um, uh, that were on placebo and those on active drug. But also, the depressive symptoms got better in both, both groups, too. So there wasn't separation from placebo uh, for, for the kids that got active treatment there. Uh, so basically, the, the end, uh, punchline on this was that relative to placebo, adamoxetine is, is efficacious uh, for ADHD, but not so much for major depression. On the other hand, a lot of these kids get better on it anyway. So um, you know, that was sort of the good news about it. Um, the, uh, in terms of tricyclic antidepressants, does anybody ever prescribe tricyclics anymore? What, one or two, some of the, the old school folks uh, like me. Um, 
It's, tricyclics have been around forever, uh, and we, they are FDA approved for, uh, for bedwetting, um, and they're good for sleep. Um, unfortunately, there's no randomized control trial that's ever shown that tricyclics are effective for, for depression alone in kids. Uh, and, uh, and so that's made them sort of fall out of favor also. Um, you know, there, there are uh, the, the level of toxicity, the risk of overdose, the need for monitoring of EKGs and things like that have made them less popular. Um, but there, there is at least some uh, evidence, uh, four out of four trials, uh, randomized control trials of tricyclics years ago, suggested that the ADHD plus depressed group may be a little more responsive than just the depressive group alone. Um, so just something to be aware of. But, but again, I think with all those other hassles with it, I, I don't tend to use them. Um, a drug that I've, I have been interested in is, is bupropion. And I've, I've seen several uh, colleagues in pediatrics use uh, this drug here and there. Um, this is a norepinephrine or noradrenergic and dopaminergic antidepressant. Um, it, again, it's only FDA approved for adult depression and actually smoking <coughs> cessation in adults. Um, but there are, uh, there's uh, at least one efficacy study of ADHD alone um, uh, in kids uh, done several years ago. There's an efficacy study of a, uh, adult ADHD uh, showing uh, positive findings. Uh, it's also been looked at in a small open label study for depression alone. Um, and one uh, particularly courageous group uh, used it in adults with ADHD and bipolar disorders together and, and had a positive response to that. That was an open label study. Um, and then when I was here before, um, back in, in 2001, I published a study in a group of kids that um, had both ADHD and depression together where we used it open label too. Just to tell you a little bit more about that study, it was a um, the, the subjects were 11, 18 years of age. They had ADHD of any subtype and either major depression or dysthymia. And the way the study was set up, um, we, we did a single-blind placebo lead-in uh, for two weeks. And then everyone got active open-label treatment with, uh, with bupropion SR for, uh, for another eight weeks. Flexibly titrated. Our target dose was 6 milligrams per kilogram per day. Again, this was the SR formulation, so we were giving this uh, BID with BID dosing. Our final sample had 24 kids, more boys than girls, mo mostly kids with major depression, lots of comorbidity, uh, uh, lots of these kids that had prior stimulant trials and even some antidepressant trials before. And the mean final dose in our sample was 223 milligrams, or 3.9 milligrams per kilogram per day. Um, and this is sort of the, uh, the punchline slide with the study. We actually, one thing that was different is we, we measured depressive response and ADHD response independently. We used a measure called the Clinician's Global Impressions Improvement Rating. Um, it's where basically um, at each visit you say, is the kid the same, a little better, a little worse, uh, a, lot, a lot better, or a whole lot better. Uh, and the kids that were much improved or, or, or very much improved were considered responders for either of those two uh, disorders. And as you can see, just looking at this slide, which is incredibly busy, uh, and I apologize, is if you look at depression response uh, horizontally across, we had um, a, an 88% roughly response rate for depression uh, in the sample. We had a 63% response rate for ADHD. So not, not bad, frankly. And the, the kids that, got, that, that had the full Monty, they got both depression and ADHD response together were about 58%. So uh, not, not a bad uh, finding, especially since we did a placebo lead-in at the beginning and compared many of the, the outcomes based on their, their ratings after they'd been on placebo. Now, after I left uh, Dartmouth, um, I, I got involved with a, a group of, of investigators, including a, a really smart um, pharmaco, um, or pharmacology um, attending that had been doing these sort of uh, studies for years. And he convinced me that 
if I really wanted to do other research with Lobitrin or bupropion, I needed more information about the pharmacokinetics in kids. I really had to, to uh, gather some information. So this is just one slide to prove to you I did that study, um, or those two studies. Uh, and one thing just to point out, uh, with bupropion, the, the drug that, we're, um, that, that we were just talking about, your body metabolizes it into three different active metabolites. Um, and uh, the, in this particular slide, these are kids that are on um, low doses of, of bupropion SR, uh, given all in the morning. They're at steady state. They've been on the medicine at least two to three weeks, um, a mean, mean of three weeks. And we're looking at plasma levels of the parent compound, which is the diamonds, um, and then plasma levels of all those metabolites. Look at that one at the top, that, that one with the blue squares. Um, that's a metabolite called hydroxybupropion. Um, and that's like, like 10 to 20 times higher at any given time over that 24-hour period than the parent compound. And remember that. I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, so then, then uh, I did an analysis actually right before this talk where we looked at bupropion in, in all these kids, the kids that have been in the, tri the trial uh, that I mentioned before uh, that I did, but also the kids that were involved in these pharmacokinetic studies. And we, generally, we found Wobutrin um, or bupropion was, was well tolerated. There wasn't a lot of suicidality with it, um, no emerging suicidality, actually. But if we combine all those kids together, both the pharmacokinetic and the clinical trial kids together, um, we had a, a somewhat lower response rate for depression, 30, uh, 73%, lower for ADHD, still at 45%. Then if you looked at the full Monty group, those that got better both for depression and ADHD, it was only 43%. Now, um, the, the absolute best dose for discriminating uh, responders from non-responders was 3.4 milligrams per kilogram. So if you pushed up to that dose, those, um, there was a 62% response rate for both disorders together. Um, just, just something to bear in mind. Um, kids with, with comorbid anxiety seem to be better responders uh, than kids without comorbid anxiety, which I, uh, surprised me, frankly. Um, we, based on all these uh, studies, we concluded that the SR form um, should really be given twice a day. That the XL form, that the, the, long act, the longest acting bupropion, you really can't get away with giving once a day in, in kids. But uh, kind of the other thing that uh, I thought was interesting is that metabolite hydroxybupropion. That really may be where the money is. We, we actually did a, a some uh, published a couple of papers looking at. Uh, um, clinical response based on all the, the, the active drug and the metabolites. And we had areas under the curve for all these kids. And we really could uh, link uh, directly the, the level of the, the metabolites, especially the HB, to both ADHD and depressive response. Way too much information. I apologize. Um, so let me just get back to uh, 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 sort of the bigger picture uh, again. Combination treatments uh, were, were another option. And typically, uh, when we're looking at kids with ADHD and depression together, we're talking about a combination of a stimulant and an SSRI. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of data to support that, but I think that's a reasonable way to go. The two studies that have reported that, as you can see, are actually quite old. Um, and even though this is something we do day in and out, not a lot of people are doing investigations on it, unfortunately. So one study by Gammon and, uh, and colleagues back in 93 looked at, at uh, kids that, that basically were stimulant refractory, many of which had dyslimus, 80% almost. They added fluoxetine to these kids, uh, open label. And um, th these kids, uh, 30 out of 32, had a positive response on the combination. And then another study done by Finling and colleagues in 96, published in 96, looked at major depressive patients uh, with ADHD whose ADHD had not improved on just an SSRI alone. 
um, and they added stimulin, and, and 10 out of 11 of those uh, seemed to get better. But again, those are small open-label studies, uh, lots of questions about those. Um, the nice thing about combining uh, pharmacotherapy, though, is you really have two different dials you can adjust, uh, one for the ADHD and one for the depression. I think um, parents intuitively get, get that, and, and uh, uh, it's nice to be able to have, uh, have, have those two dials potentially, um, even though the evidence isn't overwhelming at this point. Uh, but there are also issues with compliance. I mean, uh, it's hard enough to get people to take one drug, let alone two. The drug-drug interactions you have to worry about, tolerability issues. And only open-label studies to date, and I've already given you those two. Um, and there's really uh, conflicting information about um, whether the, the, the comorbid uh, ADHD uh, moderates depressive response. I mean, we really don't know. Uh, two different studies have looked at big randomized control trials where they compared kids with and without ADHD in terms of whether they did better or worse on SSRI monotherapy, have had, have had exactly opposite conclusions. So we really don't know a lot about uh, this, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think ultimately, we're all sort of between a rock and a hard place, um, you know, given that, that we don't have the, the ideal studies right now to, uh, and, and data to support what we're doing. Um, so just uh, switching gears briefly, I want to give you a, a case uh, presentation. We've got a, a couple minutes, I'm winding down. Um, and I thought this would be nice to just conclude with. Um, this is uh, probably a, a patient, or a, a, you've experienced a similar patient yourself in your clinical work. 16-year-old girl referred um, for parent, by parents for concerns about school failure and moodiness. Okay? Parent and teacher Vanderbilts are consistent with inattentive ADHD. Uh, the main stressors are school uh, failures and, and uh, also conflicts with parents about academic and behavioral issues. Um, this is a patient you saw many years ago, um, offered them a stimulant trial even back then because you, you, you were suspicious she had ADHD, uh, but the parents declined. Uh, they were worried about side effects of the stimulants. Okay. You get a PHQ-9 score. You guys are well-trained. You get, get those more than we do sometimes in psychiatry. Um, score of 14 um, uh, by the patient's report. The mom's is a little lower at 11, both in, uh, in the moderate range of severity. Um, no suicidal ideations reported by either one. Uh, this patient's never had a history of suicidal ideations or behaviors. You, you've uh, ruled out a substance use disorder or some sort of other uh, psychiatric history. So. Um, Gee, Doc, can we, uh, what, what do we do at this point? There, you've got 15 minutes to figure all this out in your, your typical pediatric appointment. Um, who would put this kid on a, on a medication? There's no right or wrong answer. Keith would. Um, anyone else uh, definitely moving that way? Okay, we've got a few others uh, over on that side of the room. Um, who, would, who would refer this kid for therapy? Okay, I, you know, I think that's reasonable too. Um, and, and, uh, and then who would use both, perhaps? Okay. I mean, really, there's no right or wrong answer. The reality is um, you ask parents what they want, and then you use your best judgment. Um, but if you are going to, if, if you've got a parent that says, gee, I'm not comfortable with the, uh, uh, using the medicines just yet, or, or um, pharmacotherapists are, are the demons of, of, of society and the world, um, then you refer for therapy and, and let them get in treatment and see how they do. If they're willing to do a MET trial, then the question is, do you go with something, you know, you got potentially two different dials. You've got the ADHD dial, you've got the, um, uh, the depression dial. Which do you do? Um, and again, we're sort of hemmed in by this lack of empirical evidence. There's a group of several years ago, uh, and I was fortunate enough to, to, when I was in San Antonio, to work with Dr. Poliska, and, and I've, I've uh, worked with many of these other guys over the years or gotten to know them. 
It's a group of ADHD and depression experts, and they got together and had a couple of different summits over, over a, about an eight-year period of time where they came up with algorithms, pharmacotherapy algorithms for treating these kids. Um, and uh, you know, essentially, they devised uh, an algorithm for ADHD, they devised an algorithm for major depression, and then they devised another algorithm for kids with both together. Okay? Um, and what they suggested makes absolutely perfectly good sense. Um, they suggested that if a parent's willing to do a med trial and the kid's willing to do a med trial, then, then pick one medicine either, in either group, an antidepressant or an ADHD medicine, use one at a time, monitor the ADHD and the depression separately. Don't just sort of glump them together, but, but tease them out and look at them separately. It seems a reasonable approach. Now, in this kid that we just talked about, again, um, you know, I, I would, uh, again, there's no right or wrong answer, but that would probably be a child, uh, the, the, the girl that we just mentioned, that I would do, uh, I would treat the ADHD first, okay? Um, again, the, um, the, the, the depressive symptoms are relatively mild. She doesn't have any safety concerns yet. It seems like a lot of the, the ADHD uh, impairment and symptoms are contributing to this kid's uh, problems. And, and so I'd probably go with that first just personally. Um, so I'd start with the stimulant following the, the Texas Medication Algorithms Group. What they found is actually 75% of kids that went with, uh, that were started on stimulant monotherapy in exactly that description stayed at that step. They didn't have to go beyond that. So that's encouraging. But they also would say if the depression hung around or uh, God forbid if the depression or the ADHD got worse, then you'd kind of rethink and maybe put, a, put them on an antidepressant or mood medicine instead. Now let's say the major depression is worse. A kid has active suicidal ideations. Um, then what they would recommend is you first uh, lead with an SSRI uh, to treat the depression. And then if the ADHD pers uh, symptoms persist, which they often do, you could add a stimulant later to, to treat that. All right, so we really are at the tail end, I promise. Um, let me just briefly summarize. Uh, these two disorders, ADHD and depression, are common. Uh, they have substantial uh, short and long-term impairment, lots of issues with morbidity and, and suicide risk. The causes of both of them parallel each other. Um, uh, and and uh, the, the cause of depression is, is very similar in kids with ADHD as kids without ADHD. But there are some things that may be unique to ADHD that make these kids at higher risk. Proper diagnosis is really kind of tricky, but you have to be careful and diligent about it and make sure in particular that you're paying attention not so much to the vegetative symptoms, which we already said were, were often um, uh, easily confused with other things, but the cognitive symptoms, how the kid feels about him or herself, uh, suicidal thoughts, hopelessness, that sort of thing. It's also important to, in the back of your mind, rule out uh, mania or hypomania. Uh, and then once you've convinced yourself and families to, to try some sort of treatment, you know, it never, absolutely never hurts to go see a therapist, and that's a reasonable first-line treatment or, or combination treatment. And then if you're going to do meds, then, then um, you know, I think that the approach I mentioned with the algorithm group, targeting that, that more severe or worrisome uh, disorder first is, is a reasonable approach. All right, lots of information, and I apologize. Uh, we got just a, a, a small number of minutes, and uh, we have to stop it now. Yes. So mixed in all this so commonly is anxiety. Yes. Um, and I know it's a precursor to depression. Where do you put the treatment of anxiety in an ADD kid? I mean, the same routine before you're depressed? Where, where do you put that in? Um, 
You're, you're absolutely right. Typically with anxiety kids, we're looking more often than not at younger kids and older kids. Uh, adolescents, um, you're gonna be more worried about depressive symptoms. The question is about what, what's different about anxiety and uh, comorbid anxiety than uh, comorbid depression in, in kids with ADHD. I would say the algorithm group, the initial algorithm they came up with had anxiety and depression used interchangeably. More recently, there was another study done of adamoxetine that suggested that it was actually efficacious for anxiety, um, as well as for ADHD and those kids that had both disorders together. And so they, they've put that on equal par now with, um, uh, with uh, if, if the anxiety is more disabling though than, than the ADHD, you treat that first. Um, if the ADHD is more impairing, then you can either use a stimulant or you can use adamoxetine, either one of those, and, and potentially get a response uh, for, for both disorders. So that's a short, a short answer to a complicated question. Thank you, Burl. That was a great talk. I think you described half of my adolescent girls in that last case. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, we share them, I think. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if there's any evidence for the therapy being more or less efficacious in kids with isolated major depressive disorder or kids with comorbid ADHD plus MDD. That's a, that's a great question. Um, no, there isn't. Uh, typically, uh, when they've looked at, at studies of uh, psychotherapy, they don't tend to think about comorbidities as much. Um, they're not, uh, um, so, so the short answer is no. Um, on the other hand, uh, interestingly enough, when kids, uh, when they, there's a study called the TAD study several years ago that was a study that looked at um, ADHD pharmacotherapy uh, compared, they had three active treatments, not ADHD, depressive pharmacotherapy, a depressive plus CBT therapy or, or CBT therapy alone, is that right? Um, uh, compared to placebo, um, they actually had a significantly better response in all three active treatments for folks with depression and ADHD together compared to um, those with, with, uh, uh, without um, comorbid depression. Right? I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, comorbid ADHD. Did I completely screw that up? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> essentially, a, having, having co-occurring ADHD in that big uh, sample of adolescents with major depression um, actually made you more responsive to the, from the, the psychotherapy options. Uh, so that's, uh, um, you know, that's not exactly the, the, the right uh, data to answer your question, but that's encouraging. Did you have a clinical impression? Um, no, I just, if for the kids who can engage in therapy, I find that it's really helpful, if nothing else, to give them some tools to use, and that's uh -huh. the language that I use for them. It's not going to make the stresses in your life go away. You're still going to have a fight with your parents. You're still going to have a fight with your boyfriend. School's still going to be hard, but it'll give you some tools to use outside when things get hard. And, and I mean that's sort of my gut feeling right. too. It's you know often the, the IEP issues are huge, um, or you know school accommodation issues, um, and even a lot of these adolescents just have never learned how to organize themselves uh, or, or take care of things or manage their time. And a therapist that can, can roll up their sleeves and address those things too, I think, can make a big difference. Yeah. Uh, again, great information. I just wanted to focus on the therapy again for a minute. Uh -huh. um, so given the high odds ratios for kid, these kids to have direct victimization or, or trauma exposure in the home. Um, has anybody made an effort to try to tease out which of those kids actually need trauma-focused CBT? Um, because for that cohort, it's going to make much more difference than generic therapy. 
It's a great question. What I would say is that um, the, the single biggest mistake that we make as clinicians is not identifying kids that have had trauma exposure. Um, you know, the reality is that's something often that, that we don't routinely screen in clinical settings. Um, um, so, so first of all, identifying trauma is, is, is step one. But having done that, um, there's really not, I mean, there, there's some really good therapies now for um, CBT, trauma-focused CBT, um, but uh, no one's actually looked at ADHD, um, whether kids with ADHD are going to be any better uh, or, or less able to respond to those. So I think it's a great question. Um, yeah, and I apologize for running so late.